Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you've heard it said the devil is in the details, but the devil also loves to live in the extremes. If he can't get you to outright deny God's truth, he will tempt you to distort God's truth. For example, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. God offers liberty. But the devil will always try to push you towards either legalism or license. God places boundaries. The devil always pushes us to either rebel against those boundaries or to set up our own boundaries within the boundaries to be more restrictive than God and so feel smarter and more righteous than we actually are. Colossians talks about this, the taste not, touch not. I think about uh, Colossians chapter 2 every time uh, well-intentioned Christians start observing Lent. The Bible specifically says this taste not, touch not. These things have the appearance of wisdom but they don't have any power to actually deal with our sin nature. And so the devil's always trying to get us to either break down the boundaries that God sets up or make ourselves restricted more and more than God ever intended. Now, one of the places that we see this push and pull of the devil in the church today, one of the ways we see Satan trying to get the church to move into unhealthy and ungodly extremes is the role of women in the church. Now, I want you to understand the conflict that was happening in the church at Ephesus. Remember, Timothy is at this time pastoring, he's essentially functioning as the lead pastor of the Ephesian church. And he's there as an apostolic representative, and he's got some unique challenges because you have two groups of Christians in this church. You have those who are coming out of Judaism, and they're recognizing Jesus is the promised Messiah, but they're coming out of this culture of Judaism, which was grounded in the Old Testament, but which had also adopted a lot of uh, pharisaical legalism on top of that. And in that culture, women were very restricted even when it came to learning Scripture, even when it came to studying Scripture. You couldn't just waltz into the synagogue as a woman and sit down on equal terms with the men when the Scriptures were being taught. And so women were very restricted under the Old Covenant and more so even under the Pharisaical tradition. On the other hand, you have the Gentiles who are coming out of goddess worship. 
because Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. And the worship of Diana was very much about the elevation of the goddess. It was religious, radical feminism. I don't know how many of you have studied mythology or you have any background in mythology. Uh, I, I would guess most of us know enough mythology to know that the names of our planets are named after the gods. And we may not be able to tell the story of all the Greek or Roman gods, but we at least recognize the names. But one of the challenges to studying ancient mythology is that the mythology surrounding the various Greek and Roman gods and goddesses was different depending on what city you grew up in or what part of the region you grew up in. And so, for example, while mainstream Greek mythology said that Zeus and Hera were the mother and father of the gods, in Ephesus they believed that Diana or Artemis was the mother of all the gods. That she was the first goddess and the first god. And that she created woman first. And that to create a helpmate for the woman, she created the man. And that the ideal for a woman is to achieve goddesshood. And how do you do that? By liberating yourself from your helpmate, the man, to get to a point where you don't need no man. And then to remain celibate in that. And then through female empowerment, you could achieve the status of a goddess. This is what was saturating the culture at Ephesus. Remember, when the church began to grow, we saw, we saw this when we studied the book of Ephesians. And when the church at Ephesus was actually born, it was born out of a cultic culture. It was born as uh, uh, the Apostle Paul was doing uh, unusual miracles in that day, and it caused a great conflict with the deity worship of Ephesus, with the worship of the goddess Diana, and people stopped buying the idols, and people stopped giving Diana the glory, and it caused an entire riot in the city, and Paul ended up having to get moved out of the city. Remember, Paul wanted to get up and address the crowd, and the Christian's like, you're crazy. This is not spiritual, Paul. You need, to, you need to, to stay out of this for right now. Let's get things calmed down. And Paul actually ends up uh, leaving the city. And this was the culture in which this church was born, a culture of extremes. Jewish Christians coming in saying women shouldn't be able to do anything. And you have this also this hyper-feminism coming into the church saying women are... Uh, superior to men that's what their religion taught women are better than men they're smarter than men so women should be the ones leading the church why you got all these men leading the church where's our equal representation more than that of course it's never about equal representation right it's about we are superior therefore we should be leading and so in this collision of cultures paul has dropped this young single guy timothy to lead this group of pastors who are in turn leading this young church at Ephesus. And we are going to see the instruction that Paul gave is neither to be hyper-restrictive, nor is it to be hyper-feministic in how God designed men and women 
to function within his church. Now, remember the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then look down again at verse 8, where we ended last time we were together. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So the context of chapter 2, at least here in the first half of the chapter, the context is prayer. Now, Paul ended chapter 1 talking about spiritual warfare. So prayer is in the context here of spiritual warfare. How do we fight the good fight? How do we serve as a soldier? Well, it starts on our knees. It starts on our face. It starts with our hands in the air, men. It starts crying out to God. It starts bringing our needs and our cares and our concerns to God. It starts as intercessors between God and our family, between uh, God and our country, between God and our churches. It, it starts in prayer. And Paul is not going to change the subject yet. What Paul is going to do, it's very interesting. Paul is, I don't know that he ever played basketball, but he's real good at pivoting, okay? <laughs> He's real good at pivoting. He is going to talk about prayer and from prayer and talking specifically about men in prayer, he's going to pivot into women in the prayer service, although he doesn't specifically talk about the prayers of women. He's talking about the prayer service. And then from the prayer service, he's going to talk about women in leadership. And then, as we'll see, Lord willing, next time, he's going to pivot from women in leadership where they're not supposed to be, to men in leadership in chapter 3. So moving from prayer, men in prayer, to women in the prayer service, to women who wanted to be in leadership, and then we're going to talk about godly leadership, Lord willing, next week. So, this morning, notice verse 9, in like manner also. How do we know that what he's about to talk about is the continuation of what he's been talking about in verse 1 and verse 8. Because he says, in like manner also. In other words, as the church is gathered in corporate prayer, and as the church gathers in public prayer, and prayer is an essential, corporate public prayer is an essential activity of the local body. Do we have to be together to pray? No, we do not have to be to, together to pray. You can pray for your missionaries all around the world. And because God is omnipresent, your prayers are omnipresent. So it's not that we have to be together to pray for one another. That's not what Paul is saying. But there is power in public prayer. There is power in corporate prayer when two or three uh, or more are gathered together in Jesus' name and we are in agreement together. In Jesus name. Now for the men, Paul had said in verse eight, you guys need to make sure that as you are leading in prayer, that your hands are clean, that you don't got hidden sin in your life. And some of you, the reason God's not answering your prayers because you're just coming angry. You're full of wrath. You got to let the wrath that you got to get. You got to get that wrath. Under control. Sin is crouching at the door, Cain. You got to get your anger under control. God says you got to deal with your wrath and you got to deal with your doubts. Don't be double minded. You got to pray in faith. 
If you're a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways, don't expect God to answer your prayers, guys. And if you're always coming with this unresolved anger in your heart, you take that anger and you lay it at the throne of grace, you, you, you can find uh, com- confession and cleansing through the confession of your sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when men are always coming to the Lord with uh, anger, verse 8, or with doubting, verse 8, then our prayers, or we got dirty hands instead of holy hands, then God is waiting for our confessions before he grants our intercessions. But that was what was going on in terms of the corporate prayer with the men. This morning, we're going to talk about women in worship. And I want to give you God's words for women as it relates to corporate worship. We're going to talk about two areas this morning. The first one is how woman, women, how a woman should approach the public corporate worship of prayer. And then we're going to talk about in verses 11 through 15, as the time allows, how women, God commands them to approach the worship, the public corporate worship, as we're doing this morning, of the word. And so first of all, let's look at verses 9 and 10 and see what God says to the women this morning about how they are to approach this worship service of Prayer. Notice verses 9 and 10. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness. We'll explain that. Okay, Not the best 2024 translation of that word. And sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, How are women to come this morning? This is a service that is about the word of God, yes, but it's also a service about prayer. And and our praises, the songs that we sing, some of them are spiritual songs about our spiritual experience, but some of them are psalms and hymns directly about or directly to the Lord. And so if I'm singing directly to the Lord, I am offering prayers in song to the Lord. How should my prayers, whether I'm speaking them or singing them or agreeing with in silence with someone else who is praying, how should I come to this service? Ladies, you need to come with intentional modesty. Intentional modesty. Now, let me say something very quickly. Modesty is more than what we wear. It is how we wear it. A church service this morning on the beach in Florida is naturally going to look different than a church service this morning in Michigan. Okay? What is modest in Florida, especially in the summer, is not the same thing that is modest in Michigan in the winter. Some of this is cultural. Some of this is what we are conditioned to expect and conditioned to see. And so it's not as simple as getting out a a measure. And we're not asking ladies when they come in in the morning to check the length of their skirt to make sure that it is what we consider to be modest. 
By the way, when my sister was a, a kid at, at CCA, they used to do that at CCA. That when she was a little girl, she'd have to come in. The skirts were supposed to be a certain length, and they'd have to measure the length. And if they, and you got, oh, you got in trouble if it was too short. We're not doing that this morning. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, there are two kinds of modesty that Paul is talking about here and that Paul has in mind. But the main idea here is that you need ladies. You need to be conscious of and intentional in how you present yourself in worship. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, how many of you ladies spend some time with the cosmetics this morning? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand, okay? But a lot of ladies spend a lot of time generally on a Sunday morning. Not everybody, but a lot of women spend a lot of time with the cosmetics. Why do I mention that? Because the word is cosmos. It's the word cosmetics that he uses here, or the Greek word from which we get cosmetics. And what does the word mean? It means an ordered system. It means you are in very intentional, not about just how you put stuff on your face, but about how you adorn the rest of your body. Women in particular, it's not just women, but this is where the issue was in the church at Ephesus and often in the church in America today. Women must be particularly careful not to dress in a way that distracts from worship. How? By drawing eyes and attention to themselves. And we all have a, an image in our head of where this has happened before, either in this church or another church, where somebody was maybe on the stage, maybe they weren't even on the stage, but because of how they were dressed, and it wasn't just the men who were having a hard time not being distracted. Even the later, did you see how so-and-so was dressed? Did you see? And it's distracting. Now, as I said, Paul has in mind two different issues here. And he, one of them is, is intrinsic to the word itself, and that's sexual modesty. That's what the word actually is generally used to mean in that, in, in that Greek culture. Sexual modesty, that you're not flaunting just because God gave it to you, you don't have to flaunt it. But notice that Paul doesn't stop at sexual modesty, which is where many times when preachers preach on this, they stop. But on financial modesty as well. Now, Paul's not saying it's a sin. Uh, some people, again, the devil will push you to an extreme. We're not preaching legalism here. Paul is not saying it's a sin to braid your hair. Paul's not saying it's a sin to wear jewelry. Some Churches interpret this so rigidly and legalistically that they don't even think women should wear jewelry out in public. That's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is saying, don't try to get so dressed up. You are not going for a night on the town, ladies, when you come to worship. And if all you're concerned about is looking your best and not presenting God with your best, then you are not approaching with the spirit of intentional modesty. See, some women were sexually flaunting in how they were dressed, but other women were flaunting their wealth, flaunting uh, how much money they had, how much more um, well-off, not in curvature, but in cash, 
they were than other women in the church. And it was distracting and it was causing a commotion. Don't wear the gowns that you wear to prom, ladies, when you come to worship. You want to dress up for prom, that's great. But don't have that attitude when you come to church. It's not about us. And when we distract others from worship, distracting the men by how immodestly we're dressed or distracting the women by how lavishly we're dressed, we are actually undermining the worship of prayer. Now, notice what Paul says after he's in like manner. Also, women adorn themselves in modest apparel, have that cosmetic approach, be very intentional. And notice this word with shame facedness. The word literally means shame, but it also can mean modesty. Now, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that we should all come wearing dressing in black? Should we all just, you know? I see a red door and I want it painted black or Johnny Cash. I'm the man in black. Is that what is that what we're all supposed to do today? Not, not, nothing against those of you wearing black. I, sometimes I wear black to church. It's very slimming. <laughs> One time for a, a, a kid's night, I was uh, as an illustration. I'm back when I was a runner. I brought in my jogging outfit. It was a black black shirt and black shorts and one of the kids said why is it all black I said because it's slimming because <laughs> it makes me look slimmer than I actually am at least in my head the idea here is not that we dress in a sackcloth and ashes when we come to church like we're coming to a funeral the idea is that those women who were being disruptive in how they dress Paul says you should be ashamed He's not saying all women should dress shamefully. He's saying, ladies, if you've been coming and all you've been caring about is the eyes on you and not the eyes on him, you should be ashamed of yourselves. And you need to start coming with sobriety. The word uh, in Greek literally means soundness of mind or self-control. See, sometimes... You want to wear what you want to wear. And the Holy Spirit's saying, uh, how about a little self-control? You wear that out on a date night. You don't wear that to the Sunday morning service. And I've seen some people come to church and things they shouldn't wear on date night either. Wear that when it's you and your husband, but don't wear that out in public, okay? So when you are inappropriate in how you dress, whether it's sexually or whether it's financially inappropriate, be contrite. If you've been attention-seeking with your appearance, ladies, and, and again, yes, I know that there are men who fall into this category too, but the exception proves the rule. Generally speaking, this is an issue that uh, women have to struggle with, being attention-seeking with their appearance. You need to be contrite when you come. Paul wants the church to be about Jesus, not a fashion show and not a dating game. Paul wants it to be about him. We come for prayer to speak to him, to have our needs met. We come to praise him with our prayers, to show our thankfulness, verse one, with our prayers. And we come to hear from him in the word. And so Paul says, in like manner, also women adorn themselves with modest apparel, 
not with broided hair, gold, pearls, costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So what does Paul say, women? Be consistent. Your appearance should be consistent with your claims of godliness. Now, he's not saying we're just outward in our godliness and not inward. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if it's inward, it better be outward too. It needs to start inside, but that needs to show itself outside. Be consistent with your claims of godliness. See, if you call yourself a Christian, you are saying that you have the godly, you have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. See, a person becomes a Christian when they admit that they're a sinner and we're all sinners. We've all done things we know God doesn't want us to do. We've all said things we know that we shouldn't say. Even if we don't believe in God's law, we know that we violated our own laws and our own standards. We've all been guilty. And Scripture says that because of our sin, the wages of that sin is death. Eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But because God loved us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he paid our sin debt for us and he rose victorious from the grave. We know from chapter 2 that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus died for every single person who ever lived or will live or is living today. Jesus Christ paid the sin debt of all mankind. And then he rose victorious from the dead. And now as the risen victor over sin, over death, over the grave, as the son of God and son of man, he can offer you forgiveness of sins if you will turn from your sin and call upon him as your savior and you believe that he's God and you believe he died for you and you believe he rose again and you believe that his payment is sufficient and you believe that his grace is received only by faith. You place your faith and trust in him. You call on him and you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of all your sins and you'll be given eternal life. And you'll be given the righteousness of Christ. Now, ladies, if that's you and you've done that and you are claiming godliness, then you're attitude and apparel should reflect that doesn't mean that you have to wear a christian t-shirt everywhere you go or that there's anything in the bible about any kind of specific dress code other than be modest be sexually modest in how you dress and be financially modest and then be consistent in how you live see a truly godly woman will be recognized for how she serves the body of Christ, not what she wears on her own body. If you claim to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is the only way you can possess true godliness, be consistent in good works. So when preparing yourself for corporate prayer, and that's the context here, how do I come when we're going to present our, when we're going to bring our requests to God, we're going to pray for people Spend more time on your testimony than on your hair, your jewelry, and your wardrobe. Save the dress up for date night, not prayer time. Okay? Approach the worship of prayer, ladies, with intentional modesty. Now, notice here's the pivot, verse 11. And now we're going to get into the most controversial few verses in all of First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is, uh, books have been written, shelves of books have been written, arguing against what Paul clearly says, because they don't want to hear it and they don't want to receive it. 
So what does God's word say to us, ladies, about how ladies are to approach the worship of the word? Listen to it in verses 11 through 15, and then we'll walk through and unpack it together. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But, why the but there? We'll get there in a second. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Ladies, Paul says that you are to approach the worship of the word, which is what we're engaged in right now, with calm submission. Calm submission. Now again, the culture of the day, the Ephesian culture of the day, which magnified Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world, her temple in Ephesus. They believed she was the superior goddess. She was the mother of all the other gods and goddesses. And she was the creator of woman first. And then the man as a secondary supplement. And the woman was superior. And men just get in the way. And women, if you really want to achieve godhood, you need to get yourself liberated from that Man, Now, why she created a crutch and then told women to get rid of the crutch, uh, that's a false religion, and you, you, know, you can ask the false religion why it is so false. But Paul, in both of these areas, is commanding silence and submission of women. Now, what do these words mean? This is where we really get into the, into the friction, right? Because, again... Satan wants to push us either towards license or legalism. And we want to make sure we're avoiding both extremes. Satan doesn't care what side of the boat you fall out of. He just wants you in the water. We want to stay out of the water because there's sharks in there. We want to stay out of the water. And so how do we stay in the boat of God's commandment? Here's the first thing we need to understand. The word silence means calmness. It doesn't mean calmness. Total silence. It doesn't mean speechless. There's another Greek word for that. That's not what it means. Now, I used to be part of a church that had just fought this battle. And there were still people in the church who felt that women could not say anything during a church service. That legalism was still, it had been dealt with, but it had not been completely removed. And so I can remember sitting in a service and one of our missionaries get up uh, uh, to present and then he has his wife come up and she started to read scripture. And as soon as she started to read scripture, we have people get up out of the choir and march out because they were upset because a woman was speaking in the church. Is that what Paul's saying? That's not what Paul's saying. Spoiler alert. That's not what Paul's saying. But Paul is saying that there needs to be a calmness in how women approach the reading of the word. Now, again, remember, on the other end, the Jewish converts to I say converts, really, Christianity is the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. I mean, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He's their Messiah. 
they were coming from Pharisaical Judaism into Messianic Judaism, okay? And so they were used to no women being in the service at all. And so some men are distracted just because women are there. And Paul said, no, no, let them learn. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're brothers and sisters. Let your sisters in. Let them learn. Let them be, in the, be part of the service. But let them come in calmness. Let them come in calmness. The public preaching of the word. It's not a time for conversation. It's not a time for emotional outbursts. And we don't have that issue here, but there are other churches that this is a weekly problem. Doesn't mean women aren't allowed to speak at all. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.5 gives instructions for women when praying, when prophesying in church. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that's a, another subject for another time. But the word silence means calmness. So I'm supposed to come calmly. Okay, what does the word submission mean? Submission is tied to an attitude. Uh, and submission really is what, is what the word subjection literally means in the Greek. It's tied to an attitude of learning. And then, as it's tied to an attitude of learning, women need to come with the attitude, I'm going to learn something from God's Word today. Not say, well, that's a man preaching. No, no, it's God's Word. It's God's Word. Whether you like the, the preacher or not, it's God's Word. So I need to come learn from God's Word. But then also, he's going to contrast it with the, with the religious radical feminism of the Ephesian culture and we could say increasingly of our American culture. Paul stresses that while a woman has full access to the public preaching of God's word, she is not therefore to then presume the right to a spiritual authority over man, either in her house or in God's house. Because this is what the Ephesians believed. And this is what Paul was intentionally combating and keeping out of the church in Ephesus. So what does calm submission look like for women in worship? Well, again, ladies come calmly as a learner, not the leader. In other words, Come to gain facts, come to be a disciple. The word for learner here, mathenateo, is closely associated with the word mathetos or methetos, which is the word for disciple. So what does the disciple do? He learns. So what he is saying is women need to have the same dis access to the same discipleship as men. Women need to be able to grow in the knowledge of the word the, as much as men. But that does not translate into women being in pastoral leadership. Women are not to presume to be pastors. Now, I know women pastors. I know you know women pastors. I am not making any, per I'm not naming any names because I'm not making any personal attacks. In fact, I had a dear friend when I was at Liberty. I was um, either a senior at Liberty or I guess I was in grad school at the time, but I was working in the bookstore. I had this dear friend. She was from Jamaica. She was working in the bookstore her name was, uh, well, I will name her. Her name is Annie, and uh, I loved working with Annie. She's such a sweet, she had such a sweet spirit. And so one day we were talking, I said, Annie, what are you studying? And she started laughing, and she said, you're not going to like it. 
And I said, why? What are you studying? She said, to be a pastor. I said, oh, well, you're right. I don't like it. <laughs> and uh, we disagreed very lovingly and respectfully. Uh, she said, well, my mother's a pastor in Jamaica, and I feel called to be a pastor too. Well, uh, whatever she was feeling called to be, according to God's word, she should not be. And so as much as I love Annie and others who are in disobedience to this, and, and by the way, it's increasing, pastoral leadership in America becoming more and more female-driven, more and more women, less and less men willing to answer the call, whether it's because of sin in their life or whether for some other reason, uh, men and men, uh, men, more men, I should say, uh, unwilling to step up and to lead in the church, in prayer or in pastoral leadership. But what was happening was uh, not just women filling a void, but women thinking they were superior because that's what their religion taught them, coming in and wanting to be in charge. Now, notice Paul's contention. Notice Paul's reasoning here. He says, I do not permit a woman to be the preacher. He's not saying a woman can't get up and give a testimony. He's not saying women can't lead in prayer. He's not saying women can't speak. He's saying that women cannot presume to be the pastor and the pastoral teacher and to preach the word of God in a church. Because, notice, the order of creation. Here's Paul's contention in verses 13 and 14. For, it's so clear. Again, books have been written to tell you why it doesn't say what it says. But let's just listen to what God says. For Adam was fir formed first, then Eve. So creation, the order of creation says that God has placed responsibility on men. Leadership, headship in scripture is not the ability to do what you want. Well, you just want to be an authority because you want to have it your way. Listen, being an authority means you often don't get it your way. Because you are the one responsible for those who are under authority. Men, you are responsible for your homes. Now, sadly, a lot of women have to take up that role because the men refuses to be the spiritual leader in the home. And the woman defaults to it. But men, you are, God is the one who holds you responsible that is a heavy weight. That's a heavy burden. It's why a lot of men are just willing to turn that over to the wife and let her lead in the spiritual realm. Let me just focus on my job. You take care of the spiritual. God holds you responsible for it all, guys. God holds you as the leader of your home. God holds you as the head of the wife. That means you have the responsibility before God. Doesn't mean that it's your authority, you get to do whatever you want to do. That's not, what, that's not what headship means. It means authority, responsibility. It means you're the one who lays down your life. You're the one who gets up in the middle of the knife, in the middle of the night with a baseball bat or a knife or whatever you got. Or whatever you're packing, guys. Just make sure. Just make sure. If you can't, if you can't shoot straight in the light during the day, don't think you're going to turn into Clint Eastwood in the middle of the night, all right? Maybe keep that base, maybe a little safer for the rest of the family. You got the baseball bat until you get to the shooting range a couple of times, okay? You're the responsible one to take the bullet. You're the one. That's what headship means. A lot of women want to be equal until it comes time for the draft. 
I don't want my daughter drafted. Oh, okay. And equal rights is different than equal responsibilities. We are not equal in responsibilities. We're not. The order of creation says it, and notice the nature of the fall dictates it as well. Adam was not deceived, verse 14. You say, why did Adam sin? Because he was rebellious. Because he willfully chose to let his wife lead. Because he willfully chose to, all right, you make the decision. I don't want to fight you. It's easier just to give in sometimes. I don't want to fight you, Eve. I'll do it. Rebellion. Then he turned around and blamed God. This woman, you gave me, God. She, I mean, you heard it. You saw it. But what does the nature of the fall have to do with it? Well, Paul is directly confronting and refuting the Ephesian creation mythos about woman, the woman being created first and about the woman being created superior. That's what he's doing here. That's his, that's his modus operandi. Okay? And Paul's emphasis that, that Eve was open to deception. Listen, Paul is not saying women are more gullible than men. I know some pretty gullible men, and I know some pretty wise women. But what he is saying is this, Adam was not deceived concerning what? Concerning the issue of submission. Concerning the issue of headship. Adam was not deceived concerning the issue of responsibility. That wasn't where Adam was deceived. He rebelled, but he wasn't deceived. Eve wanted to be like God. God says, I've created you to be a helpmate for your husband. I've created you to be a helpmate for Adam. And Eve said, that's not good enough for me. That's not good enough for me. Jesus came the first time not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. The Holy Spirit is sent as servant, capital S, as helper. He is our helper. But the radical feminist says, what's good enough for God ain't good enough for me. I want to be in charge. I want to be ahead. I want to be superior. I don't want to be the helpmate. And it's that specific area in which a lot of women struggle today. Deception as it relates to not wanting to be the helpmate to not wanting to be submissive, to not wanting to be what God has designed and called women to be. Female superiority from the Garden of Eden has always been the poison that drove Eve to the apple or whatever it was. I know it wasn't an apple, but whatever the fruit was. Paul says, ladies, don't fall into the same deception that Eve fell into, thinking I'm going to be better than what God made me to be because I don't want to be a helpmate because submission means secondary. Listen, God the Son submitted to God the Father. God the Holy Spirit is under the submission of God the Father and God the Son. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, He won't speak anything of His own volition. He'll speak what we have told him to speak does that mean that he is less than God the father does that mean that the spirit is less than God the son no it means that he is in that position in that ministry is Jesus less because he served no 
We're saved because he served, because he came to serve. And God calls, God calls all of us to serve. By the way, submission is not just for women. We're all called to submit to one another. Men are called to submit in different ways and in different times and in different relationships. But specifically as it relates to church leadership, God says, ladies, no, you don't have to submit to every man. You're not secondary to men, but wives, you need to submit to your husbands. And ladies, you are not to presume to usurp the authority and to become pastors or to call yourselves pastors or elders or whatever it is that ladies uh, call themselves today. Now, notice verse 15 as we close. Notwithstanding, nevertheless, even though Eve was deceived and fell into the transgression, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Again, Books have been written. I'm going to give this to you in about five minutes. Okay? There, are, there, there is an extensive amount of literature, most of it wrong, because it's trying to say things that aren't in the text, but in the culture. They're trying to adapt the text to the culture, and that's never right. And that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's, Paul's turning head, he's turning the train headlong into the culture. And he says, choo-choo, here we come. You better get off the track. Because we're coming through the culture. If you need to understand this, here's Paul's consolation. The confusion in this verse lies partly in a translation failure. In the Greek, it does not say childbearing. In the Greek, it says the childbearing. The childbearing. Now, that's a big difference because who's he talking about? Notice, notwithstanding she shall be saved. Who's she? Go back to verse 13 and 14. Adam was firm, formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman, Eve, being deceived. So who is she? Eve. He's talking about Eve. She, Eve, shall be saved in the childbearing. What is the childbearing? It's the promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden. That there would be the seed of the woman who would come and he would destroy the serpent who deceived Eve. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. The childbearing is a reference to Genesis 3.15. The childbearing. Not all childbearing. Not every time a woman has a child. The childbearing of the promised child in Genesis 3.15 that God promised in front of Eve, he was speaking to Satan, but he was promising it to Adam and Eve that there will come a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the childbearing he's talking about. She shall be saved through the childbearing, not her childbearing. She wasn't saved by having Cain or Abel or any of the other children. Her salvation came much, much later when a young girl, a young virgin girl, in a small country, a small conquered country, all of a sudden got pregnant. Now, it wasn't a shock to her because an angel had showed up. That was a shock to her when the angel showed up and said, Miriam, which is her Jewish name. We know her by Mary. Miriam, you're going to have a child. How's that possible? I haven't known a man. Oh, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. 
and the Holy Spirit's going to conceive the Messiah is going to be born through you, Mary. And then she gave her Magnificat, knowing that it was God, her Savior, who was going to come. Not just her Savior, but our Savior too. Savior of the whole world. Eve's Savior. Eve shall be saved in the childbearing just like all of us. And notice then he pivots again and he applies it specifically to all women. Now he was talking about the one woman. And now he's talking about all women. And he's saying to you, ladies, if you want to honor the first mother, which in their culture had been paganized, demonized, the worship of the superior woman. Paul said the first woman, she wants superior. But she's redeemed. And you need to understand that her redemption is the model for your redemption, too. It's the model for all, re- all of our redemption. So if you want to really honor Eve, then, ladies, here's what you need to do. You need to continue in your faith. You need to be focused on your love. You need to be focused on holiness and sobriety or self-control. So, ladies, I'm going to just give it to you all at once here at the end. You want to honor Eve? You want to honor yourselves? You want to be a girl power? Paul says, here's, girl po- here's real girl power. You want to change the world? Hand that rocks the cradles, the hand that rules the world, right? You want to change the world? You want to liberate yourself? You place your faith in God and you stay faithful to Him. You love everybody that God places you in contact with and you love God first and foremost. You live a holy life and you live self-controlled. You get those emotions in control. You get that, those desires under control and you will not only honor Eve, you will honor all of us. Women, you need to approach the worship of prayer with intentional modesty and approach the worship of the word with calm submission. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a loving, gracious God. We thank you that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that we all come to the cross on equal footing or we come not at all. But Father, help us to understand And we just briefly touched on it this morning, but God, the distinction and the differences that you have created in the man and in the woman, that you created us male and female, and you created us with complementary differences. And God, as we ask you to convict the men to lead in prayer and to lead in the church, God, we ask that you would empower the women to support and to encourage, and to be in calm submission. We love you, we thank you, Father. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we uh, prepare for the invitation? I don't know what your need may be, but the altar is open. Our deacons are here. Our deacons' wives available to pray with you. Let's go to the Lord now as we close.
again we thank you for your mercy for your grace God we thank you that even when we stumble and struggle in our faith and we are not faithful you remain faithful to us and it's in your faithfulness that we trust today Lord Father we thank you for your mercy and your grace and ask for your strength to live this life that you've called us to live and we ask this all in Jesus name amen before you go if you could be seated just for a moment Connie Hauser has uh, asked that uh, uh, we uh, anoint her with oil this morning. Connie, if you could come now. Connie's been struggling with uh, intense pain. It's kept her out of church for a while, and she did have some treatments here that have enabled her to get back with us, but she's still dealing with a lot of pain. And so uh, I want to read to you uh, again from, uh, you can just stay right down here front. I'm coming right down, Connie. Uh, James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verse 14 says, If any is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And so it is not anything uh, mystical about this uh, oil uh, this morning. Uh, this oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But Connie is coming in faith and in obedience to the scriptures. And so we're going to gather men. We're going to gather around her in prayer right now. And we're going to ask that God will honor uh, her faith and our faith and ask that God will give her freedom uh, from this pain that she has been enduring. Connie, you've come in obedience to the scriptures. Uh, come by faith and ask for the Lord's healing. And so we're going to pray over you right now, guys. If we come around, Connie. Butch, I'm going to ask you to pray for Connie. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we all have struggles, Lord. We all have uh, issues in our life. But Lord, right now, Lord, our main concern is our sister Connie. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, God, that uh, we come to you in faith believing, Lord, that you're, nothing is impossible for you, Lord, and uh, that you, your word says we have not because we ask not, Lord. And God, it takes action to... Uh, to um, Make your uh, make our faith work, Lord, and I just pray for her. I pray, Lord, that you put a healing hand upon her, Lord, and Father, that this pain would uh, uh, let up on her, Lord, that God, that she might be able to live a normal life, Lord. Uh, God, we just trust in you and we believe in every, every uh, in our prayers for you, Lord, through her, 
refer her to you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that this uh, that this uh, will be uh, a healing for her body. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And I pray, and I pray also, Lord, in agreement that God, that you bring healing to Connie, relief from this pain, and honor her faith today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. Hope to see you back tonight at 6 o'clock for movie night. You are dismissed. all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.